listening to a track from the CD, Jackie Tooth's Rhythm Boys. Thanks for the memory. My next conversation is with Jack. G'day, I'm Barry Green. Thanks for joining me on Conversations on Radio WA, 87.6 FM in East Perth and Western Tourist Radio in the coastal tourism towns in the southwest of Western Australia and online. I recorded this conversation in 2005 with Jack Wong Su, the author of Blood on Borneo. Jack was an Australian-born Chinese man who was a member of the Z Force operating behind enemy lines in British North Borneo in the latter parts of World War II. This story is being edited in November 2022. As we come out of the COVID-19 era, facing all sorts of economic and security issues around the world. Having been through a period of mass international tourism, there is perhaps a grassroots realisation that people all around the world have common goals and ambitions of living a safe and happy life with their family and friends, and that wars are just a way of mostly unelected elites controlling the lives of others. Due to the internet, information is no longer controlled by those elites. As Jack says in his book, now at 75 years of age, I have a better understanding of life and the appreciation that war is like business on a giant scale, where the currency used is not money, but men's lives. This interview with Jack Sue was recorded when he was recovering from a stroke that he suffered in 1997. Jack has since passed away, but his book is still available, and I think if we're to learn from history, this is a good time to hear and read Jack's story. I started by asking Jack about his ethnic background. My father came from China, from the south of of China, Canton, and my mother was Australian-born, WA-born. Her mother was half Pom and half Scott, and uh, her father was also from Canton. So you could say that we were three-quarter Chinese. And how did the white Australia policy affect you as a child growing up in Perth? Oh, it was pretty tough those days. It affected everything we did, from school to even when I joined the Merchant Navy. After 12 months in the Merchant Navy overseas, I came back dead keen to uh, join the Royal Australian Navy to get on, on destroyers. And they refused to have me because despite the fact I was born in Perth. My father was was an unnaturalised Chinese. At the swearing-in ceremony, uh, I was made quite a galah in front of 70 or 80 other servicemen who had been instructed to go in for the swearing-in ceremony. And uh, instead of this little two-and-a-half ringer, Instead of him having the decency to single me out privately before going on with a swearing-in ceremony, he immediately got up there and said, Is there a Jack Wong Su here? I said, Sir, put my hand up. He said, We can't take you. I said, Why not? And he said, Because your father's born in China. I said, oh, But I'm Australian-born. And I've served in the Merchant Navy for 12 months already. And he said, I don't make the bloody laws. He said, I just carry them out. And I said, well, you know what you can do with your Navy? You can jam it right up your ass. 
and I walked over and he threatened to court martial me and all sorts. I said, you can't do anything until I sign those bloody papers. So that's that sort of thing where I'll write through our, our lives. Starting to these days is much more um, cosmopolitan. After that experience, how did you come to be selected for Z Force? <laughs> that's the irony of the whole damn thing. Navy wouldn't take me, but Z Force snapped me up because of my ability to speak Chinese, Malay, a little bit of Indonesian and uh, be able to get away with the appearance behind Japanese lines. You talk of um, the, the foal boats and the process for putting the mines onto the shipping. Can you describe that? And the foal boats uh, were uh, 12 foot 3 in length. They were uh, rubberized can canvas and were dismantable. We had to uh, assemble them on deck of a submarine. And when the, everything was ready, we would have to uh, place the foal boats in the water. The foal boats were two man. We had the uh, mines, lipid mines, already prepared before we left the submarine. Then we would approach the Japanese ship in darkness and hope to hell we do were not discovered and we'd lower these limpet mines over the side and being magnetic they would clamp onto, onto the hull of the ship. Nice. Whenever a Japanese ship came into the harbour we were there to do it over. So that would have had the adrenaline going? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> certainly then. You're operating behind enemy lines you were inserted sometimes by aircraft and sometimes by submarine? Yes, most times by submarine, American submarines. Many times by American PT boats, patrol torpedo boats. I only made one entry by air, parachute. So had you done much parachute training before that? None whatsoever. My, my first jump was, my, was operational. I had, I must be honest, while I was in Australia, I had been to Richmond, New South Wales, the RAA base, with the other six members of our of our group. We had a jump out of a DC-3, and uh, quite frankly, I just didn't have the guts to go, because we used to jump from 400 feet, and that's very low in terms of today's uh, practices. Seeing all these bloody trees, flashing by like a thicker fence and I just didn't have the heart to jump because my commanding officer Gorchester was very disappointed with me and I said to him after I said well plain to why I couldn't do it and I also said but I won't let you down when we go in because in a, in a liberator bomber which we use for insertion by parachute, you can't see the ground. Got a chute that goes out through the tail of the plane. You sit there, you've got the lights above you, and uh, when the light comes on red, stand by to go, then it goes green, okay, let go. And you feel this jump master's boot 
seemed like about size 25 and I had to go. So it's a no, 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 in the air and the chute developed on the ground. The idea was because we used to jump in early in the morning about 4 a.m. If you're in the air too long, you've got a bloody Japanese reception committee sitting on the, on the ground. In, in a lot of your experience, and you're feeling towards the Japanese people these days, is that, is that com- different or do you still feel resentment towards them? What's your feeling, sir? Has, has the world moved on and that's just history? No, Barry, I've got entirely different views these days. I went to uh, Japan. 1979, and I learned a wonderful lesson. Young people of today in Japan can teach us a lot. Well-mannered, well-dressed, everything. It's a little wonder they are, they are so successful in their business dealings around the world. Fremantle was a major submarine base. Did you travel from Fremantle in submarines? No, I originally flew to Darwin to board my first American submarine, a submarine called the Tuna, well, Americans call it Tuna. And um, I sub- subsequently went to Borneo on that and um, got badly depth-charged on the way up and had to our, uh, attempt to uh, land on the Japanese shores. It was... Uh, completely unsuccessful because uh, where we had planned to land, my commanding officer in the TRC had flown over the area only a month beforehand, one of our planes, to do a check of of the area, see it was safe. It was nothing else but just pure virgin jungle. My commanding officer, called Chester, knew the area very well because he had been a rubber planter in the area for many years. We got a hell of a surprise to find a Japanese signal station set up there. We were completely non plus Hell of a shock. Expect to find virgin jungle you get there and a bloody big camp there, Japanese camp. So we we had to, we came in very close to shore uh, in broad daylight, which I thought was bloody risky. But the Americans didn't seem to worry about it. And uh, we were submerged. Periscope was just showing above the water. And we looked through the periscope. And there were Japanese soldiers riding horses down the bloody beach. There was an American submarine wolf pack returning to Fremantle, seven submarines, and uh, we decided that we would rendezvous with this pack and go back on one of the subs. So we finished up on a submarine called the Brim, America's called Bream. We returned to Fremantle on that, and then later when Tuna had finished most of its patrol, it returned to Darwin and we flew up from, from Adelaide up to Darwin and rejoined her. And then on, at that time we went to the opposite coast, the east coast of Borneo 
and uh, we landed 19 miles from the notorious Japanese uh, Sandakan POW camp where uh, so many Australians lost their lives. So the purpose of that mission was what? Mainly to get intelligence out regarding the possibility of an Australian commando group coming in landing on the base of the, the Sandakan Peninsula which was quite long and sealing off the whole whole headland so the Japs couldn't escape and then they would land, our planes would land arms and ammunition to the POW within the camp so they could fight their way out. It was mainly intelligence but owing to a hell of a mix up with personal argument between Blamey and MacArthur it never came about. When ships came into the Sandakan Harbour we used to delight in blowing them up. We used to do it in such a way that when the ship, Japanese ship sunk, it carried half the bloody wharf with it. So the wharf was no longer usable. We always just put them on mines on the side or alongside the wharf. When the water all rushed in, the whole ship keeled over towards the wharf, carried the bloody wharf away as well. The chances of being picked up by spotlights and that sort of thing must have been pretty high. Oh yes, I had searchlights, but you got to remember, Barry, we were always taught during training the best place to hide is right underneath the enemy's nose because he least expects to find you there. And in later years, at SAS, 1957, when I started lecturing down there to, uh, well, Mike Jeffrey was one of my junior lieutenants at the time. We taught them exactly the same thing. Tell us a bit about Perth and, and your childhood. Well, I was a Perth boys' school. I was a junior air aid warden there. I used to go down to Seascate headquarters every second, second or third afternoon because the Americans, when they cleared out of Pearl Harbour, what few submarines they had left and surface craft came down to Brisbane and to Albany. Then from Albany, they moved up to Fremantle. But because the Japanese were bombing down the coastline as far south as um, Hicksmouth, Americans withdrew the submarines back to Albany for a while. And of course, because they were so desperately short of support equipment, the Americans had no surface craft to service their Catalina flying boats and Sikorsky flight planes. And we used to go down there to our headquarters, Seascout headquarters, after school, and we'd use our, our power boats and little power boats to ferry the crews out to the, to the flying boats. Hmm. So the Catalinas, they were a magnificent aircraft. Yeah, they were wonderful aircraft. Flew a lot, to, flew a lot in those. Well, we, we relied on American submarines for supplies initially because the, they never had aircraft 
that could cover the range to fly up to where we were, drop supplies and return to Darwin or wherever. So Darwin was still the base at that stage? Uh, Darwin, yes, it was. We did other, other operations as well. We were the operation in, in Bongarwan, Bongarwan Railway Station, where I earned my, where I earned my DCM. That was uh, pretty scary, but we were only in there for 10 days. But it was probably a scary 10 days I spent anywhere. And in that, basically, you went in to gain intelligence and went and asked the local officials for it and were given it, more or less, is that? Well, I, I had to go unarmed, walk, I was to disguise as a Chinese coolie, walk down the railway line to the Bongawan railway station, passing hundreds of Japanese soldiers marching both ways. And we were desperate for time. So Gorchester, my commanding officer, said, well, Jackie said, only one thing to do. Have you got the guts to go and do it? Walk straight up onto on the railway station, go into the station master's office. He's highly respected and trusted by the Japanese. You little Chinese fellow. I said, yep, I'll do it. So I just walked up on the station. There were hundreds of Japanese troops here and Japanese officers. Went up to the station master's office, walked in. He was on his own, fortunately. Told him what I, what I wanted. And he looked at me as I was mad. He said, you must be mad. This is all in Chinese. He said, do you realise that I've only got to signal one of these officers to come in and arrest you and your head will be off? My reply to him was, yes, I know that. But unless I'm back at a certain spot, certain time this afternoon, you will suffer serious consequences. I can't tell you what, what I... Well, I blackmailed him, but I can't tell you what I threatened to do to him. Anyway, he looked at me, summed the matter up and very quickly took out his, some files out of his, out of his steel cabinet, put them in a brief bag and walked off the station with me. Had all the information I wanted. And after the war, I went back there many times to try to locate him. Jack, tell us about the writing of Blood on Borneo. It was very frustrating because the Australian government had refused me um, permission to uh, write the story. For no, uh, after the war, immediately after the war, they wrote to me, and what I did, I did a short article for the uh, West Australian, and the next time I knew I was in bloody trouble with the security officials. Very quick on the doorstep, told me to shut my bloody mouth. That went, went on right on till 1980, 
two of them, I remember, before they were released permission to tell a certain portion of the story. That sort of encouraged me to go on and do it. I've been talking to Jack Sue, the author of the book Blood on Borneo. In the conversation, Jack made reference to the Catalina aircraft. To get a better understanding of Jack's experience, you can see a Catalina at the Aviation Museum at Bullsbrook. The former WA Governor and former Governor-General of Australia, Michael Jeffrey, is mentioned in Jack's story. General Jeffrey wrote the foreword to Blood on Borneo, and this is what he had to say, and I quote, As Jack himself says in the introduction, this is not intended as a great literary work. Rather, it is a collection of stories of supremely brave men living, fighting and dying in that most traumatic of war situations behind the Japanese lines in a jungle environment, where the risk of capture, torture and execution are always high. Yet Jack and his compatriots of Z Special took that risk willingly and bravely, and in doing so made a noble contribution to the defeat of a tough, cruel but courageous enemy. It is a book that should be read by all Australians. Jack Wong Su's book, Blood on Borneo, as well as his book Ghosts of the Alchemos and CD Jackie Sue's Rhythm Boys, are all available online via jackwongsu.com, which is operated by Jack's son, Barry Sue, who's also a great storyteller. You can listen to this conversation and conversation with other innovators in Western Australia by going to touristradio.com.au forward slash conversations. Western Tourist Radio, telling the stories of people and places in Western Australia. We'll close this conversation with some more music from Jackie Sue's Rhythm Boys. (laughs) 